Welcome to another episode of A Gift from Adversity. My name is Julie Love. I'm your host. This show is called A Gift from Adversity based on my book that I published in 2020. It's called A Gift from Adversity. And subtitle is Overcoming Sexual Abuse, Domestic Violence, Bullying, and Homelessness. The reason why I started this show is after I published my book, I had a lot of people reached out to me and told me that they are also victim of sexual abuse, homelessness, and I wanted to create a safe platform where we can specifically talk about adversity and how people overcome the adversities, some tools, tangible methods that people use, and also a gift that comes from adversity. Today, we have a wonderful guest. His name is David Torres Jr. And he is one of my actor friends that I met on the set. And he's been so kind to me. And I saw his post on Facebook, which he will talk about. And I reached out to see if he feels comfortable and brave to share it with us. So I'm very grateful that David came to a gift from adversity tonight. David, thank you so much for being here tonight. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you for having me. It's going to be fun. Absolutely. So can you please tell our audience your name and what you do? My name is David Torres Jr. I am an actor and also a writer. So what kind of acting and writing are you doing? Uh, writing um, mainly horror and more drama. Like I uh, wrote and created a show in uh, cooperation with uh, my good friend, Bruce Socha, And we created this television show called The Tremont that we're still trying to get the pilot made on that. And I also created uh, these characters called Pain and Chaos, which is a horror, uh, horror story that I created. And uh, we actually stopped filming the first one next month. And it's going to be a three-part series. So the characters will uh, follow the course over three films till we get to the final conclusion of their story. So when did you get into acting? Um, acting, it's actually a funny story. Um, my wife got this flyer when Jungle Land came to the New Bedford Fall River area, uh, Massachusetts in 2018. And I had long, long hair at the time. My wife's like, you should cut your hair, go down there, bring a picture and you never know what can happen. And I'm like, I don't want to do that. I'm let my hair grow for six months. I love my hair. I don't want to cut my hair. But for a couple of days, she kept asking me. And then I was like, no, I'm fine. You can cut my hair. I'll go. And I ended up going. I didn't hear anything for about a month. And then the casting director, Billy Dowd, called me and uh, I got a pretty cool role in that. And speaking of that, that's how I ended up meeting Bruce Socha. And uh, since then, we've been tight ever since. But that's how I initially got into it. And now I've just been working steadily doing acting and it's a blessing because it's something I wanted no part of. And then it ended up being something that I feel like is my path. What were you doing before you got into acting? 
Um, working at Target. Like the retail store, working there, stocking shelves. Well, that's a big jump from the Target to being on the camera and writing the stories. Yeah, it's a huge jump. Actually, Bruce is the one who encouraged me to write. I told him I had this idea about the tree mount, and he's like, you need to put it to pen to paper. And within a month, I ended up writing eight episodes. And then I also wrote a 120-page version of a full feature length, depending on which way we end up going with it. And then that's how my idea for Pain and Chaos ended up. I wrote the tree mount, and then I'm like, I got a good idea for these horror characters. They're different. I don't think anybody's ever seen the characters like this. So I think when people finally see Pain and Chaos, I think they'll pre uh, appreciate the creativity of something new. I don't think it's been seen before. Well, David, thank you so much for sharing that. And then if people are watching live, feel free to type a comment and ask some questions for David while we are doing the interview as well. So now let's jump into our main topic of a gift from adversity and adversity part. So yep. what, do, uh, what was your worst adversity that you went through in your life? Um, July 24th, 2015, um, I got rushed to the hospital. And before I arrived to the hospital, I ended up flatlining. So when they brought me into triage, they ended up bringing me back. And when they brought me back, I woke up 36 hours late, was from a drug overdose. And I woke up 36 hours later in the intensive care unit. And I still remember waking up and I saw the doctor and he came in and he's like, oh, you're so lucky to be, you know, you're lucky to be alive. And it's, I didn't see it at the time when he said that to me. Because at the time when he said it, I looked at him and I wasn't happy. I didn't feel happy in his. I just felt like my soul was crushed because I'm like, now I'm awake and I have to do this all over again. Like the pain is not going to go away. And he's like, he was basically looking at me like, what's wrong with you? I know I, I saved your life. How could you not be happy over that? And I started crying because I'm like, oh my God, I still got to go through this. This is not ended yet. And that I would say was the biggest adversity ever because that day began the journey of which I'm on right now. And I'm still on every day I wake up. I thank God. I thank the universe for another day. I don't look forward to months, weeks. I just take it every day at a time. It sounds cliche, but it's so true. The whole one day at a time thing, completely true. And then from that day, um, I ended up getting into a great program out in uh, Plymouth, Massachusetts called High Point. And I just met, I met great people along the way. I say I got lucky because in the state of Massachusetts, there's not enough of beds for people who are trying to seek treatment. So a lot of people get turned away and you got thousands and thousands of people who truly want help. And they just, there's no beds there for them 
or the insurance company will only pay for five days, seven days, because in big insurance, they think in seven days you're cured. You've been detoxed, which in reality, science, that's absolutely false. 100%. So I consider myself very lucky. I've, I put in hard work every day to maintain my sobriety and stay sober. But also I consider myself very lucky too, because I feel like an outside force, whether it's God, the universe, I don't know which one, but it was guiding me along the way in the beginning. Because in the beginning, it was tough. I didn't want to be there. I remember calling my wife like four days in saying, I want to come home. She's like, no, you don't want to come home. I'm like, I want to come home. She's like, no, you only want to come home. You don't want to see me or your daughter. You want to come home because you want to get high or you want to drink one or the other. And I still remember that conversation because I hung up on it because I was so mad. But it took me like another day or two to finally realize I wasn't mad at her. I was mad at myself because she was telling the truth. She was 100% right. I was just choosing not to see it. I was looking to put the blame on somebody else and not myself. So I believe that was one of the days where I started putting the pieces together little by little. That jigsaw puzzle, just one piece was dropping a little bit at the time. And I always say this now, I was saying this to her the other day and I say this to her on occasion. Uh, the day I left the hospital to go seek treatment, uh, she walked over to me and she kissed me on my forehead and she looked me like, it felt like dead in my soul. And she, her exact words to me were, you need to find my David. I know he's in there. You need to go in there and find him. And them words resonate with me, I think, as long as I'm alive, I will always hold that. Because she knew the person I am today, this version of myself was there. And she knew I was there. I just had to dig down deep, like go to the bowels of hell to find him. And I'm extremely grateful every day that I was lucky enough to go and find this version of myself. The person I love, the person I look at in the mirror every day. And I'm like, proud of. The person before that, not so much. Wow. Well, thank you so much for sharing that, David. I truly appreciate you sharing that. Not so many people are brave enough to analyze and then say, and you said six years and then six months. How, how long are you have you been sober? Six years, six months. July 24th of this year will make seven years. Wow. So, yeah, when I saw that on Facebook post, I thought it was really brave of you to share. And I know a lot of people uh, appreciated the information. Yeah, now, I think mm -hmm. a lot of people just, there's a huge stigma with it. People with addiction issues or whether it's opiates, benzo, benzo like uh, Valium, benzodiazepams. And I'll, I mean, people just, they look down on you. And it's like, you know, even people close to you, it's like they're, when you're a mess, they're comfortable with you. Because they feel like, all right, he's a mess. My life's okay because he's way worse off than I am. And it's like, there's 
there's no need for that. I mean, people who uh, have addiction issues, you don't know their story. You don't know why that happened. Just because you see someone and right away, people want to assume and just call them junkies. I mean, we don't know the backstory to why that could have happened. It could have been a doctor. They could have had an injury and the doctor could have set them out on Oxycontins. And everybody knows the story of what them painkillers did to the planet. And but people don't want to choose to see that. They want to see the aftermath of what pills like that can cause. I just feel uh, people should be more open and not be afraid. Because I say my first year or two in recovery, I don't want to talk to anybody about it. Because I was part of me was ashamed to own up to that part of my life. But I learned through the process. The more I'm open with it, the more I talk about it. I'm being 100% honest and I'm not lying. So if I'm going to tell, that's why when we spoke and you and you were like, you want to tell your story, I told you, you can ask me anything because you got to be 100% truthful with it. You know, that's why I was like, whatever you want to ask me, I'm completely game with. I truly appreciate that. So David, go back to your story. How did the addiction start? Um, drinking, I mean, just like I think a lot of people do at the age of young age, 18, 19, but, uh, drinking wasn't really a big problem. I would say to like, until like my mid twenties is when, I mean, I didn't notice it was, I notice it now that I'm much older and I ended up getting uh extreme panic attacks mm. and at the time i didn't know what that i didn't know what it was i thought i was having a heart attack i was like 24 years old and i went and see my doctor and he's like you're having panic attacks so my doctor prescribed me um ativan which is like a valium or a xanax so for about 20 years i was taking uh, i was taking the ativan so you got a mixture of the Ativan, then you got a mixture of alcohol. And I look, I have, an, I like to say I have an addictive personality. So one bear was never enough. Six wasn't enough. 12 wasn't enough. And if the prescription bottle said take four a day, I was going to take eight a day. It wasn't going to be that way. So that's when I believe, I mean, I was probably addicted to the Ativan for probably 20 years like when i first uh got when i first left to go to detox um i was having seizures mainly because of the ativan the benzos there's only two things i mean you may feel like you're dying from opiate withdrawal but physically it won't kill you alcohol and benzos will kill you so when i first got there i was having seizures because of the amount of ben, uh, benzos I was taking, the amount of Ativan I was taking. So for like the first three nights, I was just constantly having seizures. Then they medicated me to the point where the seizures weren't there anymore. Wow. It, it started with alcohol, and then I uh, got on uh, the Ativan for my anxiety. I abused that. And then I ended up tearing my rotator cuff in my bicep uh, in my left, my left arm. 
and I was prescribed uh, Oxycontin 80 milligrams. So once I was prescribed that, I just feel like I call it a cool light and a hot light. I feel like once I once I was prescribed the OC80s, that ramped up the cool light in my head, and I was off and running as far as when it came to the opiates from that point, because it's a feel. It's a feeling I can unless you've experienced it. It's hard to explain what it, the way you feel, when you're when I was taking that at that uh, at the time. And that's when I, that's when my addiction got really, really, really bad. When I was prescribed the OC80s, that's when it got real, real bad. What did doctors say to you? They um, tried weaning me off. They'd wean me off on other opiates to get me better. You know, so I wouldn't be sick, but I was, uh, I was on the eighties for so, I can't even remember how long now, but it was a long time I was taking them. So no matter what they were trying to taper me off with, I was just violently ill all the time. And it got to the point where it's like, this isn't going to work. Like I said, you feel like you're dying. You won't, but you feel like you are. So you just, you find other ways to satisfy the habit. So you're not sick. It gets to the point where um, towards the end, I wasn't taking them anymore, even to get that initial feeling I had. Because once you get that initial feeling, I just feel today, you're just constantly chasing. You're chasing all the time for something you're never going to get. Because your brain remembers that initial euphoria that you got from it. And then it just becomes to the point where you're taking them just to function, just to be a normal human, not to feel any other way, but just to feel like you're okay in your own skin. That's how it was for me towards the end. It was just to feel normal, which isn't a normal thing. <laughs> but in your mind, that's what you say. You got to do this. If you don't do this, you're going to get sick and we don't want to be sick. So then you find ways to get it so you're not sick. And I did that for a while. I did that for a while. And then my body just started shutting down. And that's what ended up happening to me on July 24th, 2015. My body shut down and then my heart stopped. So, and when he brought me back, like I said, you know, I wasn't, it's sad to say, but I wasn't happy. I wasn't happy though, because I was like, oh God, I got to go through this again. It's like, you know, this doesn't not want to end. So I didn't realize it was a reason for bringing me back at that moment. But today I know 100%. There was definitely a reason why. And I feel like every day with what I'm trying to achieve with my acting and writing is... I feel like that's the reason why, for some reason, I was chose to come back. I truly believe that. I was meant to do something, and this is what I think it is. And I would just love to be an advocate for people in recovery. I feel more and more people need to talk about it and not, you know, be ashamed of it. I'm not ashamed of it one bit. If anybody asks me, I'm going to be truthfully, I'm going to be truthful and I'm going to be honest and I'll tell you my story. I have 
no issues with that. And I went through uh, great programs. Plymouth, um, Plymouth High Point was a great program. And from that program, I went on to um, New Bedford TSS where I met this, there was an incredible staff there, but there was one woman there, her name was Cheyenne, who made a huge impression on my life until this day, almost seven years later. I would tell her that if I see her today, I'd say, just know that you made a difference in my life. Even if I'm one of 10,000, you made a difference in my life. And I tell her that all the time. And then from there, I went to North Cottage, which is in Norton, which I would tell anyone who's having issues and they want to get into recovery. I would say North Cottage, basically that program saved my life. I was there for two years. I was in the sober house and then I lived in the sober house for about a year and a half. I even, I even got a job out there. And the most amazing thing was when I got to North Cottage, I finally realized, wow, you can smile and laugh again without a substance to make me feel good. And that was the greatest feeling in the world to have a real hard laugh and not be high, not be drunk. It was just natural. And that just, I think all them programs are saving my life. I got on a path where every time it was time for me to move to another program, there was always a bed for me that day. There was ne never an obstacle. So I'm very grateful and I believe the program works. So you gotta give it, you gotta give it time. In the beginning, I did not wanna give it time. I was telling my counselors, F you, don't talk to me. I don't belong here. I don't got a problem. You don't know what you're talking about. And I did that for about a week. I wouldn't go to meetings, wouldn't go to group. I wouldn't do any of it. And then just, yeah, you finally, I just finally broke. And I'm like, let me go see what it's about. And start doing that every day. It's like a routine. Make your bed when you get up. Start that routine. And, uh, yeah, from, from there, everything just started getting better. Everything, everything, everything in my life just started getting better. So I'm extremely grateful for the program. Them three programs in particular that I went through. So, David, um, thank you so much for sharing these resources and information. And I just want to go back. I know you said maybe 18, 19, but prior to that, growing up, can you pinpoint where your anxiety or maybe panic attack started? Um, to pinpoint it exactly, um, I don't know. But I want to say it was probably there the whole time. And just as a young child, I probably didn't know what a panic attack was. I probably just felt like, I feel weird, something's wrong. And it wasn't until my early mid-20s is when I was getting them bad to where they were crippling me. I couldn't drive. I didn't, I didn't want to leave the house. Felt like I was having a heart attack all the time. And um, even now, like being in recovery, I learned so many tools to handle my anxiety today with meditation. I had a, uh, my therapist out in North Cottage was amazing. 
I use the exercises she taught me seven years ago. I use them every single day. If I ever feel anxious, I go right back to what she taught me. Her name was Colleen Stanley. Amazing, amazing, amazing woman. She made me see things on a whole nother level. And it's, it's funny because the whole, I took the anxiety medication for over 20 years. I never thought I'd be able to control my anxiety just by what she taught me as far as meditating and breathing and calming yourself. And I've been doing it now for over seven years. So I learned so many things, not just about getting sober and staying clean, but so many other aspects of life as far as attitude, happiness, like before I got sober, I was the biggest person to point the finger at everybody else for the way my life was. I refused to look in the mirror and take responsibility. And I feel in order to get better, if you don't look in the mirror and take responsibility for your life, your actions, you know, you destroyed your relationship or you may have lost a job, no matter what it was, we create our life by the choices we make. And until I feel like I looked in the mirror and owned it, it was never going to go away. So today I look in the mirror, I know, yeah, people may say whatever they want about me. I, I don't really care. I look at it this way. If people want to feel that way about me, if they still do, if that makes them feel like they're winning in life, who am I to not want anybody else to win? If that makes you feel like you're winning, then, hey, I'm cool with that. I know where I am in my life. I'm in a good place. And I know where I'm going and where I where I got to get to. And I'm going to get there. Well, thank you. The reason why I wanted to ask about the pinpoint and like, you know, where it's like the anxiety started, because I am actually a journalist. And then I'm currently this week writing about mental health um, subject uh it's called student alliance on mental health where foxborough high school students initiated during the pandemic and after and then you know the anxiety level during the pandemic obviously especially teens kids like you know increased and you know that's kind of the reason why i ask if there's any abuse if there's any like you know subconscious thing or bullying that maybe you have experienced that led to this um, panic attack and then the addictions and stuff. Um, no, uh, as far as like pinpointing it on one thing, no, nothing I can remember. I mean, I had a good childhood. Um, I wouldn't pinpoint it on anything like that. Um, as far as like why once I started drinking and then once I started taking the Ativan and the, the opiates. I just, I don't know. There's just some part of me, some part of my brain that once it gets in there, it's like, we need more. We need, I look at it as, I look at it as it's like a third person. Like that person from seven years ago, he's still there. The day I say he's gone, that's a dangerous day. I always got to be on my toes and I always got to be aware he is always, always there. He's in the back. He's just waiting. You know, he wants that. He wants you to open that door. That's why every day you wake up. I said, I said before, it sounds cliche, but it really is one day at a time. 
you can't think about too far in the future, you know? But uh, I truly look at it as it, it's like a third person. Like I told you, my wife said to me before I left, she's like, this is not my David. I'm looking at you right now. I don't, you know, I don't know who this is. And she's like, I know he's there. You got to go and find him. And, you know, I went through hell to find him. And I'm very grateful that I was lucky enough to bring this person back. The loving, caring, uh, just, I just want everybody, there's so much anger in the world. If people were just more kind and just like no drama, I don't want it. I just want to be happy. And today I've never been happier in my entire existence. I love life. I love my family. And I love what I do. There's, I don't think there's anything better in the world than that. So just to let audience know, David and I met on a movie set and then we yes. were doing the background work. Now, I had no idea that you had this history. And my impression of you was what a lovely, supportive person because we were talking and then you were really encouraging me to pursue my dreams. And then, you know, when I told that I failed a real estate license test, that you said, hey. <laughs> <laughs> I remember that, and I kept telling you, you got to go again. Don't matter. You got to keep going until you get it. Yes, I know. So I felt like very supportive, uh, supportive from you. Although we just met on that day. Yeah, and that was the first time we ever met each other. Yeah, but I had no idea of this history. So what I'm saying is that, you know, the way that you present yourself today, that the part of you that you love and you're proud, that it really shows. Thank you. I appreciate that. Absolutely. No idea. But now I want to shift the question quickly to, yeah. um, I know you mentioned about meditation techniques, but what do you think the best technique for people who are really struggling to get over the addiction, um, some tangible tools that you use that you can recommend to other people? Um, that I use today? Or that you have used that you can recommend other people who have, who may be struggling with this issue? Um, as far as like struggling with the issue, um, when I started to learn another way to deal with my addiction is when I got into the, the programs. Because I had... When, before that happened to me on the 24th, before I got rushed to the hospital, I had no idea how to deal with it. My way, sad to say, my way of dealing with it was just to take more and more and more because I just, the way I felt, I just wanted everything to go away because it was, it was just horrible. But as I got into the programs and every time I moved a step forward, I learned something different from another person. Or like when I first got to Plymouth and I was the guy who sat in the back of the room. I didn't want to hear, I didn't want to listen to what anybody had to say. But then you hear people come in and you, these are, some of the people were like 90 days sober, but you could see some of them, you could see the joy. And even though I was in the back of the room, I'm looking at them and I'm like, I want that. I want that back. I don't want to be this person, but I found I was taught 
meditating and um, breathing exercises helped me significantly, especially because of my anxiety got even worse when I was in recovery. I can't take anything for it. So it was learning how to control it. And I was showed how to control it with uh, breathing, literally um, kind of sitting there, turn the lights off, close your eyes, get into your brain. And I know it may sound a little off right now, but the more I did it, the more I started to gain control of my anxiety. And today I have a much easier time. Like if I feel it coming, I know right away where to go, what I got to do. And within 10 minutes, I can bring myself back to where I was without medication. That, that is just so incredible to me because um, just to let our audience know that I suffer from child sex abuse that happened between age 8 to 13 from my father in Japan. And then um, when I told my mom, she didn't believe. So I tried to kill myself at 15 and I got homeless when I was 18 because I got kicked out because people didn't know about mental health, PTSD, sexual abuse, these kind of things in 80s in Japan. So I was never treated. So had I knew, had I known those kind of techniques to get out of it in like 10 minutes or so, then my life would have been so different because I'm 45 now. Up until now, I still have anxiety and panic attacks and stuff. And, you know, these are the tools that people don't talk about it because, you know, it's just something that stigma in our society, especially in Japan, going to see a counselor, you people think you're crazy. And yeah, I, a lot of people even still today, like, they don't believe in, I mean, here's the thing, maybe it's not for everyone. But I know once I got to North Cottage, I like I mentioned that woman, Colleen Stanley, she was my therapist almost a whole six months that I lived in that one certain house. And the things that I was able to get off my chest and have her tell me it's okay and this is what you got to do, and she would promise me all the time, I, I know it feels like it's not working right now. But you have nowhere to go. You got nowhere to be. Practice. Every day, practice. Write in your journal. And writing. Writing in my journal was, God, I want to say it was a lifesaver. I wrote in my journal, like, God, I don't even know. I must have filled up about 15 of them, like, marble me journals of black and white ones. Because I would just constantly be writing. And the initial idea I had for the horror characters I created, Pain and Chaos, came from my journals, bits and pieces of the stories I was writing. And I put it together and I'm like, oh, this is where that was coming from. So, but yeah, I would encourage in, I would encourage writing. I wrote my journal every day. I had that thing with me all the time. Whenever I had something on my mind, I'd write it down. If I had a feeling, I would write it down, especially if I was angry or upset. I'd write it down instead of lashing out because lashing out is not going to make anything better. That's old behavior that will take me back to a bad place. So she taught me tools to work that energy out in different ways, healthy ways, ways that would be productive and not negative. And but yeah, writing in my journal and I would just write, I would write by the way I was feeling like, 
if uh, one of the counselors would bother me that day, I'd write it down. He's such and such a prick. Want to tell me I didn't make my bed right? But that stuff I would write down because I couldn't say it to him because you talk to people like that, they'll kick you out of the program. But that stuff I would write in my journal because I couldn't say it out loud. But it's the same thing as saying it out loud. You still got it off your chest. It was just you put it on paper instead of verbally saying it. Well, there's a person here, um, Anthony Fitzmaurice. Yeah, Fitz. I, I met him at Plymouth High Point. He's oh. one of the first. He's one of the first people I met walking out the door, and he's like a big. He's like six three, probably two forty. He was bald, covered in tattoos, and I walked out the door into the courtyard, and I looked at him, and I'm like, "Oh God, this is going to be a lot of fun." And then sure enough, he walked over to me and he ended up being the nicest person you could ever imagine. So and we're, still, yeah, we're still friends till today, seven years later. And I met him in uh, detox together. That's where we met each other. So Anthony commented, failure is our biggest success. Thank you. And also he commented, fear, false evidence appearing real. Yep. Yes, fatigue is deep. Like what I'm talking about, like with the meditation and Fitz is the same way. Like he learned the same type of process that I did. He follows that same thinking and he's into like real, uh, way more than I am, like philosophical uh, stuff like that. And he can, he can go down a rabbit hole with that. But same thing with him. He's been sober as long as I have. So it just shows the program works. You know, it doesn't, it's, it doesn't work overnight. It, it, in the beginning, I'm not going to lie. It sucked. It was horrible in the beginning. But today I see now you got to go through that horrible part in order to come out the other side in the sunshine. You got to get through the darkness in order to appear again and see everything in color and go, wow. I'm here. I'm back. I'm who I was. But yeah, I've, oh, it's it's funny. There's some people I met in Plymouth, in New Bedford. Like I mentioned, girl Cheyenne. I still talk to her seven years later. And I was actually talking to her earlier today because I told her I was going to mention her on your program. And I was like, I just want you to know, you know, you you had a huge impact on my life. And I'll forever be grateful for that. Because when I got to New Bedford, Fitz got there before me. He was moved there a week before me. And then I came after him. So all I knew was Fitz when I got to the new program. But then I met Cheyenne, and she just made it so much easier. She was the most loving, caring person you could ever meet. She didn't look at you as you're a drug addict or an alcoholic. She looked at me as, hey, it's all right, man. We'll get through this. It's not a big deal. And I'll always remember her for that. What's the program's name in New Bedford again? It's called New, it's High Point runs it, but it's called New Bedford TSS. Bethy? No, New Bedford. Yep. TSS. TSS, got it. I'm just typing it for our audience for the resource. Um, yep. 
I started off at Plymouth High Point, and then yep. they sent me to New Bedford TSS. And then from New Bedford, I went to North Cottage out in Norton. Yes. And uh, yeah. Got it. I was very lucky. So um, I really appreciate you talking. And then Cheyenne, um, shout out to you for being there for a lot of people, including David. And then um, I just want to share a little bit from my book, A Gift from Adversity. So I ran a nonprofit for 12 years, teaching music to juvenile offenders in Department of Youth Service, uh, uh, Services. So DUI's clients who usually came through a big trauma and then categorized as criminals. I always told my volunteer teachers who go in and teach them that if you have that expectation of them as a criminal, they will never learn. They will never thrive. No. But as an educator or mentor, it's important for you to have a perspective that they are rock stars. They are superstars. They thrive. And then your language changes and your education perspective, everything changes. And so it's really on us how we could change somebody. And we have made an impact. I'm still so proud of the program that I started, School Genuine Voices. And then I'm still in touch with some of the youth that we taught in the detention program when they were locked up. But now they're thriving in their lives. And we believed in them. And we truly told them that you can do anything you want in your life. This yeah. is just part of the path. But, you know, it only takes maybe one person or like even like somebody in the program or anybody can believe in you and your potential, and that can make a huge, huge difference. And I've seen that firsthand. No, that you're 100% correct. Yes. Like I said, when I mentioned the people I talked about today, they didn't look at me as this screw up, this person that was a mess. They looked at me, they were loving and caring and never asked me. They knew I was, they knew why I was there. So never asked me just, hey, this is what we're going to do. We're going to make this work. And I feel like when people treat you that way in the beginning, in the early stages, for me personally, I'm not speaking for everyone. It just made me feel better. It made me feel welcome. It made me feel like, all right, this is okay. And this can get better. And, you know, I'm very grateful going on seven years. If you would have told me that day in the hospital when that doctor came in my room and would have said, Seven years from now, you're going to be very surprised. I would have looked at him, swore up and down and said, I'm lucky if I get a week. And that was the honest to God truth, the way I felt at the time. I didn't think I'd get a week, never mind a month, never mind 90 days. So to have seven years now, I'm extremely proud of it. And hopefully another 50 years. Yes, absolutely. That's the goal. So the last part of my question is a gift that came from adversity. How would you say a gift that you learned or came out from this adversity? The gift I feel that came from this absolutely was, I feel like I was brought back. I truly believe it was for a purpose. Other than that, um, why not just die? But for some reason, that's what I believe. I, I believe I didn't die because I truly believe the path I'm on right now with 
the acting and the writing and being so creative with the writing and the encouragement I get from others around me, especially um, people like Bruce, who I mentioned I met on Jungle Land. I mean, he played a huge part as far as in my acting and my writing. Like he's the one who's constantly been my biggest cheerleader. And we speak every day and I tell him all the time, you know, like, I don't know if I'll ever do, I don't know if I'll ever be able to repay him for everything he's taught me along the way. But I feel like my gift from all that, I feel, bottom line, I feel like everything I went through in my life up until seven years ago, I mean, um, 10 years of it was absolute hell because I, I didn't know a way to get out of it. But I found a way out of it. But I truly believe today, whether it's God or the universe, I believe I had to go through that. That complete pain, going to the hospital, everything happening the way it did, going to get help. I believe I had to go through all that mess in order to get where I am today. I feel like if I never went through that, maybe, yeah, I'd be sober, but I don't think I'd be a happy person if that whole issue never happened with me because I wouldn't have been doing what I'm doing today. I believe what happened that day on January, uh, July 24th, 2015, led me to where I am. I believe that was my purpose. And I truly believe that was the gift. The gift was being able to live the life I live today. Sober, uh, getting to act as much as I've been doing lately and having the ability to write whenever I want and not have difficulty coming up with something. That is the gift. And more than anything else, the gift more than anything is alive. Being able to see my daughter, you know, being her freshman year in college, seeing her graduate from high school uh, last summer. Them to me are the two biggest gifts in the world. And, you know, like my daughter told me, this summer, she's like, you know what? I got to tell you that I'm extremely proud of you. And she's open about me. She has no issues telling her friends. Yeah, my dad has issues. My dad's been to um, halfway house and a sober house. And she doesn't run from that. And I told her, I said, I love you so much for that. You know, um, I don't want you to have to feel the way. She says, no, why am I going to lie? It is who you is. She says, look at you now. Look at what you're doing. So that means the world to me that my daughter accepts me. And that's all I care about. That literally is all, everything else to me is white noise. I shut it all out. And that's it. I know the path I'm on and I know where I got to get. And I'm definitely going to get there. I truly appreciate everything you said today on this show, A Gift from Adversity. This has been my manifestation, my goal, ever since I published my book. And story like this, I know it would empower a lot of people. And then I know that speaking of it, any adversities that we go through as a human being, whether you are in Japan or in America, it really doesn't discriminate us. But then how would you attack it? How would you cope with it? People don't talk about it. And no. that's why I wanted to create this platform. And it's a wonderful platform. That's why when you reached out to me, you were like, would you be willing uh, 
and be open to talk. I'm like, absolutely. I have no issue talking about it. If someone else can get something from it, even one person, and it can make them think like, hey, that guy was a huge screw up. Look what he's doing with his life. Then that's all that matters. I just want people to know it doesn't matter what age you are, young, old. If you if you give recovery the chance, give it time, don't be in a rush. It will work. It absolutely will work. I'm living proof of it. And I know a couple of people who I went through the program with, who, like I said, still talk to today, like Fitz. And a friend of mine who I was in North Cottage with, he was there with me. He's actually one of the executives running the program now. So it just it just shows just be patient. And more than anything else, if anybody's having a hard time, you got to cut yourself a break. You are not the worst person in the world. You are not a bad person. Cut yourself a break. You know, you deserve it. Give yourself a chance. More than anything, give yourself a chance because you might be surprised what comes out the other side. That's, that's fact. That's very powerful. So Anthony, again, committed, um, the truth shall set you free. Be open and vulnerable. Our recovery from trauma is someone else's blueprint to freedom. Yeah, see? He's very brilliant. Great man, too. Great, great man. I'm very grateful I got to meet him. I believe, oh, like, I believe I was supposed to, I, I believe there was a reason uh, Anthony Fitz came into my life. I believe there was a purpose for that because I didn't know anybody when I got to Plymouth. He was the first person I met, and then I ended up hanging around with him for two months. And he made the whole time I was there comfortable. And then when I got to New Bedford, I met Cheyenne. Same thing. I believe she came into my life at that point because she was supposed to. I truly believe it was an accident. I met her at that time because I was supposed to meet her at that time. Just like when I got to North Cottage, I met my therapist there, Colleen, because I was meant to meet her at that time in my life. Not in my 20s, but I was meant to meet her when I was 42 years old. And I believe each one of them served the purpose in where I am today. And without them, I don't know if I am here because they were all part of pieces of the puzzle. And I feel I need them in order to be doing what I'm doing now because they all play a part in it, in my opinion, each and every one of them. It sounds like a movie, the end of the movie story that it sounds like. It's, I just want to, it's true because <laughs> I didn't do it alone. If I didn't have Fitz there with me in Plymouth, I don't know if I have a good time. I don't know if I stop laughing again without, you know, a substance to make me want to feel good. Mm. And then when I moved to New Bedford, uh, Fitz was already there a week before me. So it made that transition to New Bedford even easier for me. And then I met Cheyenne the day I walked into New Bedford. She was behind the desk and she was like, you know, the biggest smile I ever saw at that time. And it just made me feel good seeing someone like that because there was no judgment. You could see it in her energy, her eyes. There was no judgment. It was, hey, welcome. This is the room. This is the bathroom. This is where you go outside. And I just feel like each and every one of them had a significant play in my recovery moving forward. And I believe they came into my life for a reason or I still wouldn't even be in contact with them like I am. 
So I know um, we are wrapping the program, but what is your dream or goal at this point of your life? Dream and goal. My dream and goal is, well, my main dream is to be there when I see my daughter get her master's degree. That's probably going to be the greatest day in my life, seeing her get her degree. And my goal is basically I want to be able to get up every morning, write, go on auditions, and act and do that for the rest of my life. That is the goal. I want to get up, write something if it's on my mind, go to an audition, and go do acting work whenever I need to do it. And if I can do that, I don't want to be famous. It's not about, it's for me, it's not about fame. For me, it's about leaving something behind to be remembered by it. You know, 40 years from now, I want my daughter to go, wow, my dad was a mess up until he was 42. But look what he ended up doing with the last quarter of his life. You know, if fame came with it, so be it. But it's not about that. It's about getting up, making a cup of coffee. All right, what do I got today? Oh, I got an audition at nine. Okay, I'll do that. What do I got later? Oh, you're filming this at five. Oh, okay, I'll do that. That is... That is the end game for me, to live my life doing them three things. That's awesome. You know what? I have to say, I know you said you really don't care about fame, but you may win Oscar one day, and you might have to start practicing your Oscar winning 30 seconds <laughs> of music. Yeah, wouldn't that be amazing, right? <laughs> I believe in you, and I have a faith in you. And then because, Thank you, I appreciate it. Absolutely, because I talk to... Um, you know, our actor circle friends and then everybody speaks so highly of your acting skill and you know I I truly believe in you because you know as me as a survivor as well we actually have this weird tool that you know just like having a panic attack yeah so just for example when I was on Don't Look Up I was a principal role and when I was able to work with Adam McKay, the Oscar-winning director-writer, the second scene, that's got cut. But I was in the call, and then I was delivering this line, and he asked me to panic. And he asked me to freak out of the lines that I was saying. Yeah. And I was just so right on. Yeah. Drawn into where I reached my true panic attack and he loved it i only did like three or four takes and then he said we got it thank you that's it and that was really one of the greatest moments yeah because you were able to get there so easy yes and bring it yes. out because it's there it's it's always there yes and you so can you bring can... it out with if need be yeah so you can be so authentic in acting world and had i not experienced the true panic attack and true fear in my life I don't think I would be as authentic as yep. being that Oscar-winning director wanted me to be. Very true. So, you know, sometimes these adversities sucks. Absolutely crazy, like, you know, trauma, always horrible things. 
But yeah, I look, you're 100% right. I look at it, yeah, because I look back on it now and it's like, I'm grateful. Today, I'm grateful I went through it because it took me here. But as, like you were saying with the trauma, as you're going through it, it's it's the worst thing on the planet because it doesn't stop. It, there's no end. But now that we see that it had an end, we get to see ourselves now. We get to see you. We get to see me as productive adults doing what we love now. And Absolutely. that's beautiful. Yeah. And then just one more thing I wanted to add is as an actor, so when whenever I'm auditioning as well, like, you know, making self-tape right here and, you know, or on a set that you just have this emotional dynamic range that people cannot reach if you hadn't gone through this adversity. I you, agree. You agree? Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I, yeah, there's certain like characters I find very, very easy to get into. Mm. Very easy to get into. Because of what you went through. Yeah. And I've taken like on some auditions, I'll take bits and pieces of everything I've gone through. And you can use that to your advantage. So today I choose to use everything I went through and now I use it to my advantage. If it calls for it, I'm going to use it. Why not take something that I thought was going to break me and now use it as a release to get me something greater? Well, David, thank you so much again for being on my show. It's such a pleasure. And then Thank you, Jerry. I really appreciate it. Yes. And how can people find out about your work, any website, social media, Instagram? How can people follow you? Um, social media. Uh, I only do Facebook and Instagram. Facebook is David Torres Jr. Instagram is David Torres underscore Jr. And I put a lot of my, not, I don't put a lot of my acting stuff so much. I've been putting a lot of my writing stuff, like about painting chaos. And I do put, um, I do put my acting stuff, but not so much, but you can find it there. Especially like my violent roles that I play, because them is so them is so much fun for me. And people who meet me on set, they're like, "Man, I can't believe you're this person, and you play this person." I'm like, "But that's what makes it so much fun, you know? That I get to be the the crazy, the bad guy, the psychopath." I'm like, "I don't mind. I'm like, I have so much fun doing that." Because then off camera, I'm quiet, and I'll go outside. They're like, "Hey, man, what's up?" They're like. Wow, you're not like that in real life. I'm like, no, I'm not like that in real life. <laughs> no, I don't walk around shooting people and beating them with hammers. That's my character does that. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, right, yeah, right. Acting yep. is fun. Well, thank you again, David, for spending your night with us. And thank you, our audience, for listening to another episode of A Gift from Adversity. And I have some guests coming up. Uh, one of my friends, Darren Reynolds, who's coming from Japan uh, oh, on nice. six, and he's going to talk about his depression. And uh, we have a variety of guests that had came uh, come on in the past, so check out all the episodes. But thank you again, David, and what a pleasure to speak with you tonight. Thank you very much, Jerry. It was my pleasure, and I had a blast. Thank you so much. Wonderful. Thank you. Have a good night. Have a good night. Everybody.